Good morning and welcome to another edition of Down the HR Rabbit Hole. My name is Sanders Offner and I am the president of Crescent Payroll Solutions. And we have a, a fantastic lineup for today's podcast. Um, some great content and I know our listeners are, are patiently waiting for some of this information to come out that we're going to be sharing with you today. Um, I do have. I do want to introduce our, our resident HR advisor, Philip Carrillo. F- welcome, Philip. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Happy to be here as always. Excellent. So, Philip, if you don't mind, would you kind of um, walk through the topic of today, what we're going to be discussing, and then introduce our special guest, please? Gladly. So, this morning we're talking about something that is um, probably on more employers' minds than they ever thought they than they ever imagined they would have to think about. Um, this is remote work or work from home. Um, <clears throat> we have with us today um, Alex Glazer, who's a partner with Jones Walker. He advises clients on everything from wage and hour to tax and uh, various other employment-related uh, law. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your bio, Alex. Great. Thanks for having me. So I'm a partner at Jones Walker, as Philip said. I'm actually in the tax group, but focus a lot on employee benefits, executive compensation, and labor and employment-related uh, issues. Um, obviously, today's topic. Obviously, today's topic is uh, one that is at the top of employers' minds, which is work from home, and it raises a host of issues that I deal with on an almost daily basis for our clients. Awesome. Very good. So. Um, Alex, where are you from? You're from New Orleans? From New Orleans, yep. Excellent. Good. Hometown boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my, my first question is, is, I don't know if it's a question, but uh, I figured I'd just throw this out there. I, You know, from what we've been seeing with, you know, talking to some of our clients or the business community is that the the younger age group, the, the millennials, the Gen Ys, at this point, many of them feel like the working from home is a right. Mm-hmm. Um, and for many employers, that's, that's, that could be an issue. So mm-hmm. what, what are you seeing with you know, clients of yours or what's going on in the business community to, to either adapt to that or be able to at least explain to maybe a younger employee of, of why it's important that you come back to the office? Sure, it's a great question, and I think you hit the nail on the head, Sanders, in that you know the new generation of the workforce believes that working from home is a right, not a privilege. Employers are struggling to say, well, part of you know what the law says, part of your essential job function, if you craft your policies correctly, is in office attendance. You don't have a right to work from home unless your employer says that you do. Um, so there's this inherent tension between what the employee wants and what the employer wants. Obviously, some employers are more flexible than others with respect to uh, work-from-home policies. Um, there are arguments on both sides. I think we've heard them all. You know, employers want to foster a you know a, a work environment that's collaborative, and oftentimes that requires an office attendance. Um, some employers, uh, some job positions. Um, are just not collaborative by nature. So they're more conducive to working from home than others. Now, if employee X sees employee Y working from home and there's not a bona fide business reason for why employee X is working from home and employee Y has to come to the office, and you know, it, it raises a host of potential non-discrimination issues um, that, that we can certainly get into. Yeah, that's a, gr- that's a great point. So I know 
So let's back up and, and, and let's talk about how kind of it all started, obviously, with, with, you know, when COVID hit, businesses had to adapt. We had to, we were locked down. We had to go, most of us had to go work from home. When, you know, the, when the COVID spike has, has come down a few times that it has and employers are starting to ask their employees to come back to work, uh, what we saw a lot of was some employees were resistant to that. You know, like I'm scared to come back to an office setting. I don't want to catch COVID. So what were employers having to do to either, um, you know, maybe rewrite a rule or, or include something, or an addendum to their handbook to be able to, number one, stay in compliance, but also be able to appease the employee? Sure. I mean, first and foremost, a lot of employers didn't have in their handbook that you must show up in the office. It said, okay, working hours are nine to five. Okay, it didn't specify where working hours, right? So number one, if uh, if you want in-office attendance, that had to be specified in the handbook, right? And a lot of employers said, oh wait, like we actually might need to say, here here's our office address and uh and put it down in uh in our handbook and require in-office attendance. Um, but to your second point, Sanders, um, in terms of flexibility, a lot of employers kind of had to make an exception if they were an in-office mandatory attendance employer and said, look, you can work from home certain hours, you can work from home while we have COVID spikes, or alternatively, you must come to the office. A lot of employers said you must be vaccinated or we must test you, which was certainly compliant with, with law. Um, you know, there were a host of different types of hybrid-like policies that dealt with in-office attendance work from home, COVID testing, sim- you know, symptoms and being sent home, at what point do you have to report them to the employer? At what point does the employer have to get involved and say, well, we think you have COVID, you must go home. Um, it, was, uh, it was an interesting time, but I think employers and us lawyers, we also learned a lot about, um, about flexibility and about, um, about really a lot of novel areas of the law. I mean, a lot of this we were dealing with the DOL was playing, Department of Labor was playing catch up on uh, on what were the exact policies you could put out. So we were advising clients, okay, you can do this before the DOL actually had guidance on it. Like, thankfully, I think we were right <laughs> on all of our advices. Uh, the DOL kind of mimicked what we were initially advising, but a lot of times it was uh, kind of fly by the seam of your pants type of policies. Um, but I think employers are going to have to be a lot more flexible to attract talent in the future. I think we all know that. And they're going to have to be a lot more nimble with um, with rolling out policies, um, whether that's handbook updates, whether that's you know communicating them to work to people in the workforce that must know them, whether that's training. It's just going to have to go a lot faster. I mean, employers were kind of in the 20th century, and COVID forced them to catch up to the 21st century pretty quickly. Yeah. So I would imagine that you know you're you're working with a lot of your clients on redoing handbooks or adding some additional policies or addendums to that you know philip one of the things i think with uh, with our crescent hr advisory i believe you've probably been asked similar questions around you know what am i able to do or not to do or or you know do i really need to look at redoing my handbook do you find that um some businesses were resistant to that because i i feel like there are so some some businesses out there that said you know, th- you're coming to the office. I don't care if you, you do or you don't want to go and almost scared the employee into coming back or they would lose their job. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think that that changed fairly quickly because people, um, it, you know, have migrated away from companies who have that sort of rigidity about their about their policy making. In particular, um, maybe a few months back and and prior to that, even in the beginning of COVID, of course, there was so much fear. So people felt entitled to. Uh, working from home, either because they were afraid for their parents or they were afraid for some distant relative that they might be exposed to. There were all kinds of reasons that were being, I think, um, perpetuated in, in various media outlets for people to, to feel very um, much more afraid than maybe they, they needed to be. So there was, when you're afraid, you certainly have a sense of entitlement to protecting yourself. That's survival instinct, I think. But um, the, I think it boils down to, um, yes, the speed of communication. There's also, um, in addition to that, clarity and resolve. And so if a, if a business wants to commit to a particular dynamic with their employees, they have to commit to that um, wholeheartedly, and they have to communicate it clearly, and they have to really understand the why behind that. Mm -hmm. What is it? If it's really about collaboration, then, and all the jobs are fairly independent, um, then there's it doesn't quite jive, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. a d some dissonance between their their rationale and um, and uh, and the reality of, of what's happening in their workforce. Mm -hmm. So, um, I always think you know take a step back from uh, whatever you're trying to uh, relay in either messaging or in some sort of policy, and think about the why behind it. What is the reason why you're asking anyone to do anything? Um, you know, and tie it back to what is your mission and then what is your vision for mm -hmm. your business? Where are you going to go? So if where you're going does not need people to be in the office or doesn't need, uh, you know, some high level of collaboration uh, between people who may be in completely different functions in the organization, then you have to rethink why is it that I need people in here? Is it some other reason? Because if you don't get to the the real reason your communication strategy is going to fall flat mm -hmm. for these employees, and it's going to really, um, it's going to resonate in a way that breeds um, negativity rather than what your really aim, your real aim is, which is a better cultural outcome, right? A better business outcome from better culture. For sure, and just building upon that, I think, uh, you know, I think you're setting forth the the idealistic and hopefully uh, what what most employers would would do. Um, I guess from the pessimistic lawyer at the table, <laughs> we see uh, we see people abusing those types of situations all the time. So you know we can craft these great work from home policies and say, look, we're going to be you know this flexible employer. We're going to have you know it's aligned with our mission. It's you know it's fantastic. But uh, but you know in reality, we all know that that doesn't 100 percent of the workforce doesn't buy into that. Right. There's going to be people that are pushed the boundaries. There are going to be people that take advantage of certain situations, um, and it's that would that will breed, you know, negativity, unproductivity, mm -hmm. and ultimately, with um, you know, resent resentment from the employer towards the employee. So, uh, so we saw a lot of situations where the work from home wor worked for people, for most of the workforce, but didn't work for everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, and how do you deal with that? Is is uh, from a HR standpoint, including legal standpoint is uh it's kind of what you and i deal with yeah exactly there's that's the real art of the whole thing the whole effort really revolves around um what we call performance mm -hmm. um and so if if you've got folks working from home and you're you're worried sick okay i'm not really sure that i'm going to get any kind of performance out of these employees do you have any strategies for how you um 
how you would advise clients on how they approach that topic of performance management for yeah. remote workers? Well, I, I think if, during COVID, people were certainly worried for their own health, for their relatives' health, and I think employers had to be flexible about that, as we were said. Um, it's really no different than, you know, than any other situations that obviously COVID was unique, but people have personal things that they're dealing with every day. I think we all had our own personal level of comfort or discomfort with the disease. Um, you know, employees are, are human beings. They go through things in their personal life all the time. An employer still has a right to expect certain threshold productivity and performance from an employee despite what's going on in their, in their personal life. This just happened to be a pandemic where it affected more people <laughs> than, than normal. Um, but I think you know, employ it's important to comp to compartmentalize. I mean, we as human beings have to do that all the time, and employers certainly have a right to expect employees to do that. But they also, you know, when an employee is saying, "Look, I literally have anxiety that I so much anxiety that I can't perform my job," then you're getting into issues of does this require leave? Is this a disability? You know, what wh do our policies kind of say about this? Did you see a lot of leave um, requests? Uh, did you see a rise in that? We saw a lot of leave um, requests, a few for anxiety, a lot for symptoms um, that were either COVID or suspected COVID. Um, we saw a lot of um, a lot of hesitation towards taking tests. Um, I think taking you know, if there is another spike, you know, taking tests before you come back to the office is uh, certainly a legal policy for employers to implement. Um, and we saw a lot of hesitation towards that. We saw a lot of um, legitimate uh, resistance towards that, a lot of what I would call illegitimate resistance towards that. Um, I won't get into the specifics of some <laughs> of the illegitimate ones, <laughs> but some of my clients <laughs> certainly uh, got a kick out of some of the things that um that that we heard um so yeah it's just a mixed bag like it is with any employment issues you're gonna have um a to z in terms of just people's comfort level with certain things and people's um dedication to the job and people's ability to kind of push the boundaries and push an employer's buttons to the point where um you know, there might be a performance issue or a potential separation. So, when you, you know, you touched on compliance uh, a minute ago when you said that, you know, a lot, a lot of your, your firm's advisement was really before the, the, the you know, Department of Labor even came out with any type of ruling. So when you look at the compliance side, you know, as it pertains to FLSA and ADA, where, you know, was that, you know, was the advisement ambiguous or before there was a ruling or any guidance from the Department of mm -hmm. Labor? So how did how did your firm approach yeah, that end? It's a good question, it was interesting. So we really had to analogize it to previous DOL pronouncements on the issue. So they'd had some previous pronouncements, I believe it was about the bird flu. Um, I remember And we kind of built on that before they really put out COVID-19 specific guidance. We really said, well, what did that guidance say, you know, about, you know, giving people the right to leave, mandatory testing, um, things like that. And then the DOL guidance kind of built upon the previous um, bird flu guidance, but was obviously a lot more comprehensive. Um, when it came to the benefit space, I mean, a lot of people said, look, you know, COVID's cost us a lot of money under our group medical plan. I mean, we've got a lot of sick people. 
premiums are going up. If you're not going to get vaccinated, then we're going to we're going to um, impose a surcharge, right? And by the way, if your spouse is not vaccinated, we're going to impose a surcharge on your spouse as well. Um, was that legal? The DOL didn't really say for a long time, but there is guidance under, which I thought was analogous under the wellness program rules, that it's really akin to a wellness program, at least as it relates to um, to the spouse vaccine to the spousal vaccination. There was some other guidance that related to mandatory vaccinations for employees. Um, that uh, that was clear. You could do it for employee. That clear. You could impose a surcharge on the employee. But the spouse was a new one. The DOL didn't really say for a long time whether you could do it. We had a very large client that did that. Um, got a lot of pushback, but they did it anyway. Made national headlines, and uh, they were one of the first large employers to do it. And thank God we were right that yeah, it really is a wellness program, <laughs> and uh, and you can impose a surcharge on on spouses that refuse to get vaccinated. Um, so uh, so yeah, it was it was interesting. Uh, you just kind of had to find something analogous, Sanders, in the law. It says, yeah, I think we can do this. Um, and kind of, you know, employers weren't waiting for the Department of Labor to come out and say, yeah, this is okay. They had to go ahead and do it. I mean, for the health and safety of their workforce to continue their business. They couldn't wait for the government to play catch up. Wow. You know, um, let, let me shift here because, I, 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 you know, when we talk about work from home <clears throat> and employees working from home, I feel like – We've we've had some questions come up where from from maybe a, a a client that said my I don't know if my employee has the right setup to be able to work from home where they maybe they don't have a home office or they don't have space or they don't have mm-hmm. a good enough internet but um, does the employer have the right to inspect the employee's personal space to determine that or are they just relying on what the employee says they have or they don't have? Yeah, it's a great question, and I'm not sure that there's a clear answer to that. It's kind of like, um, you know, does an an employer have a right to inspect, you know, a desk or a locker in, in, you know, in the workplace? I think there's been some guidance on that, that that unless there's a pretty bona fide, reasonable expectation of privacy, the employer really does have Mm -hmm. that right. But but where does that bona fide expectation of privacy arise in a workplace? It's pretty much, okay, it's not your home. In your home, I would think the presumption is that the it's a the right to privacy would probably trump where the employer can't go in there and say, okay, do you have high-speed internet and did you download my cybersecurity you know, platform appropriately? I think a lot of employers, if they're going to mandate that an employee have certain threshold minimal IT infrastructure in order to work from home, they're just going to have to get a signed representation that they have that stuff. Mm. And, you know, obviously if an employee is on a Zoom call and keeps breaking up, you know, and it's, you know, numerous times and it's due to, you know, not a sufficient internet speed, I'm not sure an employer can go into that house and say, okay, let me inspect your internet. I think they can ask show me proof that you have whatever gigabyte internet that's mandated by the policy um, in order to appropriately participate in video calls. I do think you can ask for proof or a receipt or something of that nature um, and on an ongoing basis because 
you know, next monthly. So I think yeah. you could ask yeah. for <laughs> month right. to month if there's still, perf- um, you know, performance issues with, with respect to the internet. I don't think an employer can go into an employee's home, um, even if that's their workspace. Maybe maybe I'm wrong mm-hmm. on that. Maybe we'll see some court cases on that. But I just I think that's pushing it too far. So as, so as the legal community and the HR community look to kind of future-proof what really work from home looks like, and I do think, to your point you said earlier, employers are having to have this as a part of their of their business, having that flexibility, giving the employees the ability to work from home. We've had to do that in our own business. And I think um, in a lot of ways, number one, um, my staff has proven that they're fully capable of doing their job uh, just as if good, if not better, working from home than they would in the office. And I think that being able to give them additional flexibilities of working from home um, is is a retention tool in, in a way. So as you know, retaining an employee is important, obviously, with, with what's going on with the great resignation at this point, but also attracting the talent. I would think that the work from home, the flexibility to work from home, almost has to be included on the front end when you're looking to properly recruit someone. So, you know, if, if um, I know that was long-winded, but my question is, if, if I'm interviewing someone that, you know, has asked, like, what are your what's your policy on work from home or your flexibility there? And do I need to be able to give them an accurate statement around what my handbook says at that point in time? Or am I giving them just a roundabout idea of what it looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think a best practice, and Philip, you can certainly chime in here. I think the best practice is to go job position by job position, say, is this a remote position or not? Either your whole, uh, maybe your whole office has to come in, or maybe your whole office works remotely, or maybe you do it position by position. Um, we're seeing more and more of the third option, which is go job position by job position, say, is this a remote position, or is this not a remote position, or is this a hybrid position? And it should be matched up to the job functions. You know, do those particular job functions, are they conducive to working from home? If so, perhaps it's a remote or hybrid position. But um, doing it on the back end, like not telling someone, you know, whether it's a remote position or not, and there's, you know, this tension of, well, can I work from home two days a week? Inevitably, the employee might, employee's going to ask that at some point. Um, and you, if an employer grants that request but hasn't granted a similar request to a similarly positioned employee, that creates potential legal issues. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I think um, you know, here in New Orleans, we have uh, extra um, issues that we had to deal with in the last two years with uh, remote work. I mean, we were forced to work from home when the building was shut down yeah. because of Ida. So um, this is just a obviously a very preeminent issue for employers these days. And um, I think there's so many more topics that we could cover, everything from compensation issues. Um, you know, obviously employers have major questions about do we have to pay more or less to people uh, who are working from home? Do I have to pay for their internet? Do I have to pay for uh, equipment and all of those things? Uh, we could talk about taxes. I think that's really important too. We need a follow-up uh, poly- podcast, I think. Yeah, the withholding <laughs> and reporting has, I, th- I think, really gotten um, the tax withholding and reporting, as you guys know, um, on a state level has, uh, has really been a challenge uh, for employers. Um, you know, now it's typical for even small employers to have remote employees in another state. At what point 
you know, to your point, Philip, at what point do you, is there a reporting and withholding obligation on that employer? Yeah. At what point is there a tax nexus to that state? Um, there are just a host of issues um, that, that arise. Um, there are a host of, of FALSA issues, like you said. You know, if, if an employee takes off for lunch, how do you clock in and clock out remotely? Do you right. have that, rem do they, can they do it on their phone or not? Can they, do they have to do it on your, on your interface? you just give everyone an hour for lunch uh, when they're working remotely? I mean, what's, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, I think um, I think what we definitely do is, um, let's Alex, let's bring you back for a part two. I think we'll probably sit here for an hour and talk about all these wonderful topics. But um, um, we're, we're cutting close on our, our time allotment here. But we want to thank you for coming in, and we appreciate your time. Uh, thank you, Philip. So this will wrap up another edition of Down the HR Rabbit Hole with our guest, Alex Glazer, and we look forward to part two, which should be coming soon. Have a great day.